if we tell you we're going to do something, we're going to do it. Welcome closers. This is the Profitable Property Management Podcast coming at you live. I'm your host, Jordan Wayla, and this is the place to come for weekly interviews with world-class property management entrepreneurs and industry experts who open up and share their secret sauce so that you can apply their knowledge to grow your property management empire. Whether you manage 100, 1,000, or 10,000 units, this broadcast is designed to help you see the big picture and give you the tools and tactics that you need to get to the next level. Don't forget to join us in the Profitable Property Management Facebook group where we talk profit, share resources, and ask podcast guests follow-up questions after the interview. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Today... I am talking with Michael Cook, the COO of Street Lane Homes, a real estate investment and property management firm serving Atlanta, Chicago, Houston, Vegas, Miami, Phoenix, all over the nation. Michael is also the director of asset management for GTIS Partners, a leading real estate investment firm. And uh, Michael's actually making the transition from Street Lane back over to GTIS as Street Lane was recently acquired by Roofstock. Lot to talk about here. I'm excited to have him on the show. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thanks for having me, Jordan. All right. So, Michael, let's talk a little bit about background in terms of the space that you play in. It's a little bit different than traditional single-family, third-party third property management. Talk to me about GTIS and, and how you got into the whole Street Lane side of things. Yeah, happy to. So uh, I've been at GTIS since 2011. Uh, GTIS has been focused on uh, residential real estate since 2009, really post the crash of 2008. We really started to focus on residential. Early on, we were focusing on residential. Uh, we really kind of started off with the basics and saying, okay, where is there going to be the most dislocation? The uh, initial uh, thought was land. So we bought a bunch of land uh, when it was really, really cheap. We kind of continued to move up the ladder. Then we moved to home building. And then we were saying, okay, what's the next step? We've got land. We've got home building. And then really single family from rent was kind of just getting uh, an institutional backing and an institutional start. We saw a huge dislocation in current pricing uh, in the markets of homes. And we thought, what a good opportunity to potentially invest and get uh, some outsized returns. Uh, when we initially invested our first investment in 2012, we really thought it was going to be uh, just a trade. We thought we're buying homes 40 or 50% below peak. If they get back to even you know 10% below peak, we'll have made a lot of money in a couple of years and we'll be able to sell this thing and make a nice 20 or 25% IRR. But I will say over the, over the next kind of year or Two, we realized that one, it was an extremely challenging operational business. So it wasn't like we were just going to be able to sit back and collect checks. Two, uh, it really was a, a serious cash flow business and it created a nice cash yield that we could market to our investors and our investors really liked. Kind of fast forward two or three years, you had uh, another five or six kind of major institutions uh, entering the space. You had a couple of companies go public. And the SFR industry was born. Uh, and we were one of the earlier players. And we kind of stayed small and, and really focused on operations. And so 
I think that really helped us to, one, uh, continue to provide our investors a good, strong cash-on-cash return annually. But two, also, uh, I think that was part of what drew uh, Rootstock to our platform ultimately uh, and led us to the ultimate sale. So for those of us that don't have a background in finance, explain to our listeners what the term dislocation means. Oh, so ultimately, real estate is cyclical. And real estate, you know that today, prices are going to be one thing. And over the next 10 years, inevitably, there will be some kind of a negative market shock that will depress prices. And because real estate is such a slow-moving asset, when you have these price shocks, um, all of a sudden you have people panicking and you have prices that are moving much faster than real estate was generally designed to. Uh, and that's where you call the, that's where you kind of get a dislocation. It's basically when the market moves are uh, exasperated or, or much more than what would normally be expected given the information. So in 2007, 2008, you had the mortgage crisis where all of a sudden the mortgages and the uh, mortgage-backed securities market really tanked. And so there was no one there to buy mortgages. And uh, you had a number of investment banks fail and community banks and, and other banks failing. Uh, and so you had a lot of banks all of a sudden stop lending completely. And so you had a market that was very... Uh, liquid all of a sudden become very illiquid where no one could actually get loans to buy homes. So there was really a pause in the buying. And because of that really kind of depressed prices, because even when there's a pause in buying, sometimes there are folks that really have to sell. And so those folks will sell at prices that are very, very low. And, and usually that is because of a foreclosure. So you'll have banks who have bought properties or who have repossessed properties, and they will need to get those properties off the books. So they're willing to sell those at kind of bargain based on prices, which is why you saw a lot of uh, the initial uh, large institutions really going after auctions uh, and really going after foreclosed homes, uh, because those are the only homes that were really kind of moving. And they were moving at prices that were well, well, well below what I would say would be standard market if you had normal trading. So if you had uh, normal mortgages and normal banks looking at normal FICO scores uh, with normal lending practices, the prices would sell uh, much higher than, than they would when, when those things weren't happening. And so when things are not normal, basically, that's a dislocation. Got it. So you're the first institutional guest that I've had on the show. Talk to me a little bit about how you guys thought through doing in-house versus third-party management. We've seen another a number of these institutional players do basically choose a third party rather than internalizing it for maybe 12 to 24 months until they were able to learn enough to bring it back in. How did you think through kind of the competency and, and the gap in what you guys had already done and what caused you to go the route of internalizing? So I would actually characterize it a little bit differently. I wouldn't say that they learned enough. I would say that the frustration level became uh, too <laughs> okay, high. There you go. Uh, that, 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 that's the real answer because like most institutions, we also went that route as well. When we first started, we had third parties managing uh, all of our properties. At one point, I was having to deal with eight different third-party property managers who were all giving me eight different reports who were all managing my properties eight different ways and taking my recommendations, but not necessarily understanding that I had investors that I had to report to and they wanted things done a certain way. So we also, on top of that, you know, we had loans as well 
and there was loan reporting and things that we would um, have to rep to in the loans that related to how our properties were being managed. Because of that, I think that there was really just no good way to conform the mom and pops to the institutional needs. I think the thing that people underestimate on the institution side is the reporting. I think that the property management side is, I won't say it's basic because it's not, it's very complex, but ultimately that's generally the strong suit for the mom and pop property managers. They've got great relationships with tenants. They know the markets really well. They can set rents really well. They generally have a good stable of folks who can do property or do repair and maintenance. That's generally not where they fall down immediately. Now, as size gets bigger um, and as they have to take on more and more properties, all of those things become a challenge. But the biggest challenge we found was the institutional reporting, was being able to provide solid financial controls, being able to provide a solid institutional investor report that could be backed up with actual data on a weekly slash monthly slash quarterly basis, being able to rep to specific criteria uh, that we were evaluating tenants on. All of those things became harder and harder to manage as you had more and more third parties across multiple markets. Once the headache factor got to a point where you're like, okay, not only are they getting to a point where they're probably beyond what they can do, we're getting to a point where uh, we are doing so much work to backstop them that we might as well just do it ourselves. Talk me through from a the perspective of an institutional investor, how you felt quality did or did not manifest itself in the eight different entities that you worked with. And I'm, I'm sure it was probably more than that as there was some churn involved. From your perspective, what did a good property management company look like and do? The number one thing is managing expectations. The hardest part for us was if we tell you we're going to do something, we're going to do it. And so if I tell you I'm going to be bringing 50 homes to your platform every month, ultimately I'm going to end up with you know a 1,000 homes in your market. You can either wait and get those 50 homes and then not be able to service them with your current staff, or you can hire up to make sure that you can provide the right kinds of service, meaning you're going to have to lease 50 homes a month meaning you're going to have to provide repair and maintenance services. So you're going to need to get in touch with uh, more GCs and contractors than you may normally be accustomed to. Uh, You're going to need to hire more leasing agents. You're going to need to hire more folks in accounts payable, all of those things. So it was really anticipating needs. And I think some companies did that. And the companies that did that, I would say, lasted the longest with us. But then the companies that really took a wait-and-see approach and said, okay, I'm going to wait and see. I'm not really anticipating this institutional market will be that great. They eventually, you know, they they didn't do any of that staffing. They didn't lease things uh, in a timely fashion. So there, you know, you'd have one leasing agent trying to lease 50 properties. By the time they hired and trained somebody else, it was two months later. And at that point, you know, you've got 150 properties that need to be leased. And so getting ahead of things was the first thing that helped. Now, to be fair to the property managers, Many of the institutions forced some of the smaller guys to hire up and then took away their business with almost no notice. Uh, and so they really burned some of the, the, the smaller folks. And that was never our intention. I mean, our intention was always, we're going to give you 12 months notice before we take the business away and let you know what's coming so that ultimately you can scale down uh, in a reasonable manner and you won't really have a negative kind of capital effect in your business. Some of it was just they had been burned in the past and so they weren't willing to step up. I think some of it was also just 
they're, they're mom and pops. They're used to kind of this small business that makes them a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. They're not used to kind of ramping up to taking in millions of dollars of receipts and servicing that kind of portfolio. I think some of it was it was just a mix of both of those things. Whiplash, no doubt, totally makes sense. What about the types of properties? What did the investment thesis look like? Were you consistently buying a certain class of property? How was that being determined? Yeah, I would say that's right. I mean, I think that we bought what everybody else bought, uh, kind of that $100,000 to $200,000 home uh, across uh, all the major markets. The thesis was really in that area because what happened to the market was you basically had banks stop giving out mortgages. And so the folks that get the most mortgages are those entry-level home buyers. They are very dependent on FHA and mortgages. And so you had a lot of those folks who were either um, not able to get loans because they had a foreclosure and or not able to get loans because the FICO scores that they were demanding were just so high. That area was really ripe for purchase. So when you look at the portfolio of lots of the institutional and the public, you'll see tens of thousands of homes right in that band across all markets. And so we were doing what I think everybody else was doing. Uh, and you had a lot of folks who were um, leasing there because they couldn't, they couldn't buy. So it was a good market to be in. It still is. I think that that generally should have been the wheelhouse of most property managers. We weren't doing any kind of esoteric things like buying like really expensive homes or really cheap homes. Uh, we were kind of buying that kind of bread and butter standard house uh, with the $1,200 rent that was just, that is generally easy to manage. Mm-hmm. Got it. So when you internalized, how many properties are we talking about at peak? So 4,000. So uh, at peak, we were 4,300. 4,300 properties across how many markets? Across six markets. All right. Once you internalized, talk me through what the internal goals look like. What were you optimizing for? How did you think about yield? And what was kind of the secret sauce behind driving that yield? So we really had two goals. Ultimately, the goal for the property manager was to break even financially. So we were hiring lots of folks. Uh, and we were comparing it to a third-party property manager. So if we hired a third-party property manager, this is how much they would charge. We were pretty much charging the same thing to our funds. Uh, and the goal was to break even while providing kind of best-in-class service. And really for us, the comparables at the time were the publics that we could see. So you could see their operating costs uh, and understand where they were at on the repair and maintenance side. You could see where they were at on the tenant retention side. You could see where they were at in a lot of the standard metrics uh, that we would generally use to judge a property manager. And so for us, we would look at monthly reports, but ultimately, we would be looking at the quarterly reports and comparing our in-market performance to our peers. The goal was to build a property manager that would significantly improve where we were. Because we were, when we had third parties managing it, ironically, when we first started our property manager business, we were doing much worse than the third parties were doing. But over time, we became much, much, much more efficient than what we had with third parties. There is a learning curve. It, it's not uh, property management is not nearly as simple as I think uh, people would like to believe. It is a nickel and dime business uh, that takes a lot of focus and a lot of attention to detail. That if you're not aware of, you will certainly get burned. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, no doubt about that. A lot of moving parts involved. Let's lean into some of the specifics. You mentioned four to 300 properties, six different markets. Let's talk about maintenance specifically, which is one of the more complex areas of, of coordination. How, what was the approach that you guys took towards maintenance coordination? And what did you kind of learn as being the, the difference between doing that well versus not? The first thing that we thought about on a maintenance coordination side is one, how do we minimize the number of calls? So how do we minimize and maximize the tenant's ability to actually handle their own stuff? That starts with having the right online interface so that when they go to put in a maintenance request, uh, there are a number of things and kind of hurdles they have to get over, a uh, number of automatic questions that pop up. So they go and say, okay, I don't have power to my garbage disposal. Before they can kind of finish their submission, uh, it will say, have you checked the breaker? And they'll have to click yes. And then uh, once they've clicked yes, they've checked the breaker. And then we say, you know, have you checked the switch under the sink, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then the final thing is, you know, we warn them, great, glad you've done all this. We come out to the house and we find that any of these things uh, either haven't been done or it is uh, something that is tenant cause, we will bill you back. We want to be very clear up front that ultimately, you know, we're not here to uh, be a hotel service and just come uh, at your whim. Uh, we are here to uh, provide a, a service, uh, but this is really your house. That was kind of number one. And then the, number two, there was obviously a technology component in that we had to get to a point where we could start to batch the uh, work orders so that we would have our internal folks uh, minimizing the windshield time or the drive time between homes. Uh, we had to get some warehouse space and figure out exactly what are some of the most common things that we're doing all the time and how can we get those in bulk. So things like paint, things like carpet, things like doorbells, other things uh, that we change all the time, toilet fixes, those sorts of things. That, that's kind of number two. And then number three, we were really looking at okay, now that we've got the technology side fixed, how much work should we be doing internally versus externally? So when do we, when does it make sense to start hiring our own technicians uh, versus using third party? Uh, and we got to the point where we we're actually doing about, uh, we were targeting to do 80% of all of our repair maintenance in-house. We got to about 65, and I think we're still, we're still pushing to kind of get to do even more. The most challenging thing is HVAC uh, and roofing, and we generally... HVAC technicians are very expensive, uh, and so it's very hard to keep them uh, once you get them. It's really hard to do that work, but we, we still do probably almost 70% of our work in-house now at this point, and that was another kind of big cost-saving measure. I would say those were the three big things, but there's a lot of little things that go along with that as well. Um, we had put together some processes and protocols uh, that are always followed so that, one, it makes it easier to train folks. Uh, and two, we know exactly what's happening at all times and we know what should be happening. And we're able to actually check on that by doing kind of spot check and doing secret shopping uh, just to make sure that it's happening. So we're able to check with our repair and maintenance folks to make sure that A, they are uh, following the protocol and, and are charging back, for example. So if they go out and it's a nice little lady, they're not just giving her a uh, free doorbell, even though, you know, her grandson put you know, some kind of a, a, a sticky tape on it. Now it doesn't work. You know, it's those sorts of things that we're trying to minimize because obviously all of that affects our bottom line. 
How are you handling all of that communication coordination? Did you have some in-house tech that you built out for that or were you on a third-party platform? So we generally are using Yardi to manage all of that. Uh, now we have significantly customized Yardi, so it's certainly not an off-the-shelf uh, execution, but we've used Yardi. We've looked at a number of third parties, but the challenge is that the third parties are just too expensive. Uh, SMS Assist, we've looked at. Uh, we've looked at um, uh, some of their competitors as well. We just haven't been able to find anyone that can do what we do at a similar cost. Uh, because if we could, we certainly would. And we haven't been able to find any kind of off-the-shelf technology that would provide the perfect solution. And so we've invested probably at this point $500,000 plus in the right systems that, that work for us. What's your advice on coordinating third-party vendors, managing those relationships, both in terms of leaning in and, and doing the things to demand what needs to be demanded, but to also to realize that if you push too hard, they're going to they're gonna fold like a cheap suit. What's the right balance there in your mind? I think that it is really making sure that you have enough third parties so that you're not too reliant on any one, nor are you giving anyone too much work. Because ultimately, for us, it's really about finding medium-sized third parties where we're not their only client. We may be their biggest, but we're not their only client. And also, uh, we don't want them to be too big because then we don't get we don't get the attention we need, right? So it's that, and then it's about understanding what their capabilities are, and then making sure that we don't use them for anything more than that. Because every time we've tried to uh, go beyond what we knew our folks to be capable of, it has always failed. I can't tell you how many GCs that have blown up um, because we gave them too much work, and rather than say no, can't they can't do it. You know, they'll take two, three, four, five, 12 jobs and end up doing none of them and getting fired from all of them. It's really about us trying to manage uh, their capacity. And I know that doesn't, I know that sounds weird, but we know you take a little guy and all of a sudden you tell them, here's $2 million worth of jobs. They get super excited, but they don't realize that they're going to have to coordinate, you know, hundreds of different workers and different crews. And it's going to probably cost them a million bucks to kind of get there. And I think that. Because they don't have that mentality, we have to really think about that for them. Yeah, you know, it's really such an interesting question to me, the challenges around organizing disparate labor forces. And you see this in other areas like like Uber, for example. Do you have any thoughts or, or feedback on what seems to be so inherently challenging around organizing this type of labor and why it seems so transient by nature? Yeah, I think because uh, there's a supply and demand dynamic that is really uh, off right now. On the lowest rung of that labor, uh, there are a lot of people that need that, and there's not a lot of supply. Uh, it's a combination of, uh, one, just the fact that housing is really back in a big way. And so you've got everyone from new home builders to uh, the SFR players who are rehabbing hundreds of thousands of homes across the U.S. And so there's a lot of work. And then on top of that, you've got a really strong job market. So you don't have a lot of folks in need of that work. And then furthermore, with the immigration push, you've seen, we've definitely seen, uh, I would say, net migration of folks away. And so all of that has created a very tight labor market. And because the labor market is so tight, it's very hard to keep labor um, because the guy that's painting your house could certainly be painting the house next door. 
and will do that if they offer him, you know, five, 10, 15, $20 more, right? So this is the challenge. And so it's about trying to figure out who can be the most. And again, I, I have no real answers um, because for us, it's really just about trying to find the most reliable uh, GCs and companies who, who have been able to figure that puzzle out. Uh, and we've probably found, I would say, two or three in every market who've been able to do that. But for the most part, this is why we're trying to hire a lot of that stuff in-house. Yeah, it's interesting to me to talk to a number of folks in the maintenance world and running larger companies. And the answer around that question that I just asked you is never particularly satisfactory. It really does seem to come back to just volume. Like, hey, yeah, no idea why it's so transient, so difficult. But the answer, the solution is just putting enough bodies down the funnel to have coverage for when things break down. So do you want to network with other grade A entrepreneurs that are ready to talk more than simple day-to-day operations? Are you interested in expanding your business through cutting-edge sales, marketing, and growth strategies? If so, you need to be at the 2019 PM Growth Summit held in April in Austin, Texas. Check it out at pmgrowsummit.com. Learn what the difference is between hope and actual results. It's called taking action. That's what we do collectively at the PM Grow Summit by bringing in world-class speakers, world-class attendees. Get more information at pmgrowsummit.com. Another key part of the business is the leasing side of things. When we think about the differences between single family versus multifamily, the leasing process and the level of optimization within that function of the business certainly comes to mind, at least for me. How did you guys approach how you handled the leasing process, leasing terms, optimizing rental income, et cetera? Walk me through what, what may have been different about a street lane approach versus your average mom and pop's approach to leasing. There's two big differences. The first big difference is when you have a large portfolio, you have your own comps. And so it's much easier to comp properties when you own 10 houses in a three block radius. And so that's the first part. I think the second part is uh, we certainly spent a lot on technology. We tried House Canary. We tried Intera. We tried a number of folks who have promised, you know, the ultimate data solution. And ultimately, what we found is that uh, our own portfolio was the best uh, was the best system. In addition to that, uh, you combine that with kind of just standard uh, Zillow data, which doesn't cost us anything. And we get to the right market. The other piece, too, is really just having strong property managers who are willing to get out of the office and do market tours. Uh, I'm doing a market tour now in Nashville, but we make sure that our PMs spend every Friday out doing market tours and property tours because that, to me, is the absolute best way to figure out what rent should be. Uh, And because we're renting generally uh, at any one time, probably 100 homes, uh, I think it's really important that all of our kind of staff understand exactly uh, what's going on in the market. And as much as House Canary and those folks can provide data, there's no, there's no better data than just walking up to a property, putting your eyes on it, putting your eyes on the properties that are not for sale next door, and really understanding exactly what a tenant sees. And so to me, the best property management companies are able to do that effectively. And it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of time, so it's not easy, but ultimately it pays huge dividends when you're able to price your homes and keep your homes leased uh, at a much, much better clip than I would say uh, some of the competitors. 
Sure. Being in the market always makes sense. Have your hands really wrapped around the problem. How did you guys handle leasing terms? Were you always looking to have the bulk of leases expire within a a pretty short window for peak leasing season? Uh, Yes and no. I think the negative of that is that you also have all of those homes that have to turn at that time. So you'll need, if you have, say, 4,000 homes expiring in a four or five month window, you have a real operations nightmare. For us, we try to have basically an eight or nine month uh, smooth window, and then we try to avoid the December, January, February timeframe. But for us, it's much more valuable to have a smooth kind of standard every 30 days. We know we're going to have you know 200 or 300 homes coming on the market versus having 800 homes come on in a you know span of four months. Mm-hmm. What about raising rents for the folks that I work with that are are focused on really achieving above market rents? The way that they're thinking about it is that when that rent raise comes in, what they're being anchored against is the pain and the inconvenience of moving out, not necessarily the linear thirty dollar increase. How did you guys think about? maxing out rental prices, what was your approach there? Well, for us, it's actually less about the tenant and much more about where we see uh, comp pricing at today. So if we see that the comparable homes are priced uh, 10% above where we are, then we're likely going to want to get that 10%. If it's a 3%, then for us, it's a combination of, okay, you've got some pain if you move, and we've got an expensive you move. So how can we kind of both create a win-win situation? And so there, we're much more focused on, okay, let's get a standard 3% raise and we're both happy. But let's say it's a 5% difference. We'll take a 3% raise increase and we're fine. It's once you get past that kind of 7%, 8% when we become agnostic to you staying and paying the higher rent or leaving and us getting a higher rent and doing a turn. For us, that's how we really think about it. I think that there's obviously some nuance to it. Tenants that have stayed in the house for three or four or five years tend to have done more damage to the home. And so those turns will likely be much larger. So because of that, there may be some uh, subtle twists and changes to that. Uh, it's not necessarily black and white. But ultimately, uh, for us, that, that's that's sort of how we kind of go about the thought process. And so this is really interesting. This is an example of alignment versus non-alignment of incentives. When you say that, part of what you're highlighting is the fact that as the management company, in your case, there was no third-party owner to bill for doing that turn, right? Like if you push the rents too high and somebody moves out, that's not actually going to drive any profit for you. Whereas for a traditional third-party management company, that actually could be a revenue center. Did you find that there were any ongoing issues with alignment of incentives early on when you had third parties managing your portfolio? You know, ironically, I would say there definitely was a misalignment of incentives, but I don't feel like we, I don't feel like the property managers were exploiting those things. I think for them, it was easier to renew a house, even though they got much, much less for doing that. It was just much easier for them to do, so they would rather renew. Uh, Because at the end of the day, they care much more about locking in that 6.5% than they do about trying to hire a leasing agent, lease a house, 
uh, and then potentially getting a, a bigger leasing fee. Also, yes, they were getting you know 10% of the repair and maintenance costs for the repairs, but that also meant that they would have to manage those repairs and they would have to figure all that stuff out. And so to me, I think that the, ultimately for most of the folks that we dealt with, we actually found them going the other way and not raising rents when they should have been and not pushing tenants out when they should have been, uh, but much more opting to kind of keep the status quo and business as usual, just because that's easier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, this is a significant ongoing talking point, and it really speaks to how much variance there is within the mom and pop market. It blows my mind to see the the quality and the range of service within this industry. And a part of that is a the fact that it's it's geographic in nature, it's decentralized, part of that's a lack of regulation, but the variance in service quality and therefore the variance in approaches is pretty significant. Let's talk about the hub and spoke model. In theory, as you scale, you're getting these economies of scale, you're you're having the ability to really drive efficiency. You guys were in multiple markets. What would be some examples of where you feel like you were able to achieve some significant benefits? And what did that look like in, in kind of a hub and spoke model? Well, the number one benefit is the purchasing power. Uh, being able to purchase paint in bulk, being able to partner with Home Depot and Lowe's and get substantially discounted pricing. I would say today our pricing is probably close to uh, what the large publics are getting. That, that's number one. Uh, number two is being able to batch the repair and maintenance items so that ultimately if I have a guy uh, in the streets, he can hit 10, 12, or 13 homes a day versus if I've only got maybe 20 homes, I've got to pay somebody probably three times what my guys charge, what, what I'm paying my guy, because I pay my guy 25 bucks an hour. And so if he can hit 13 homes at 25 bucks an hour, uh, I have probably saved three or, or four X what I would have paid a third party to go to each one of those homes. That's another saving. And then um, I mentioned this earlier, and I don't think it should be trivialized, but There's a tremendous value in understanding what the rents are and what the costs are to owning and operating a home in a market. And so we can say, I can tell you exactly what, you know, somebody charged me for a new carpet in this home that was two blocks away. And so when you charge or try to charge something different, I know that that's not acceptable. Similarly, I know what the rents are in those areas. and I know them cold because I'm always constantly renting in those markets. So I don't have to worry about understanding the block-by-block block nuance uh, in a market because I own homes on almost every block. That, that's a part of it. And then also, you know, you're able to have uh, one leasing agent or you're able to have less leasing agents because, uh, again, if you have one leasing agent showing a home on this block, uh, a tenant doesn't love that, she can go the next block, the next block, the next block. Additionally, we're able to get savings on technology stuff like Brentley and other things. So the technology spend is easier when you can spread it across more properties and you can actually spend on technology that will make everyone's life easier and that'll make you more efficient. Those are the most obvious things. Uh, I'm sure that there are some additional more nuanced things. Uh, certainly on the staffing front, we're able to staff up a little bit more uh, specific so we can have a VP of construction or an SCP of construction. We can have an SCP of national leasing. Uh, you can have a little bit more of a layered office, which helps you which ensures that you don't miss the nuances of, of each of those things. 
Makes sense, particularly that last bit around hiring and being able to have somebody really operate at a high level for each department. But prior to that, you did mention technology. I'm curious, how do you think about smart home technology, IoT? What do you think there's the real opportunity there? And when do things completely bleed into hype in terms of how that really could affect rentals? So if I'm being honest, I'm probably more negative on the in-home technology than most. You really have to look at the cost benefit of doing each thing. So I do that on a regular basis. And so right now on the technology front, we use Rently and we are considering using Filter Easy, but it's still not, uh, I think we're still kind of in the test phase there. But ultimately for me, the technology has to either provide me more rent or substantially lower my operating costs. And when I have a technology in a home that needs to be Wi-Fi enabled, so that means I have to have Wi-Fi going to each of my homes, you know, that's a $50 a month expense and that, that matters. And then on top of that, when I have technology that breaks uh, and I have to fix, that's another issue. So, you know, the ring doorbells, people love those things, but ultimately, you know, that doesn't provide additional value to me. Like no one's going to say, I'm going to rent your house because it has a ring doorbell. They're going to rent your house because they like the layout, because they like locations, like the neighborhood and the schools. I have not found the in-home technology to be tremendously valuable yet. Uh, I have a lot of it on my own home, but I just, I have not found it to be cost effective or efficient in our rentals uh, yet beyond, as I mentioned, rently. And we're looking at potentially a filter easy. We've looked at lots of technology. So we've looked at SMS Assist. We've looked at um, a number of those uh, in-home technology things that will monitor your home. And none of that has been something that we wanted to, uh, I would say, deploy nationwide yet. You would be the poster child use case, right? You have the scale I would have thought that this would have been an example where that would have been a slam dunk. So there's there's a bit of a dose of cold water there. I am curious because you just mentioned it. How did you guys approach inspections? Being that you were stewarding your own properties, what was the right cadence and frequency and who was doing home inspections? So we do our own home inspections. We've got uh, an inspection team uh, and they uh, have an inspection checklist. Uh, we do them ourselves just because we know what we want. We, we've hired the inspectors. And they do the same thing for every single home. We built an app in Yardi that to allow them to use their iPads and uh, identify all of the needs for a home. Generally, I think at this point, they've gotten the inspections down to a couple hours. Uh, we generally do two inspections a year. We'll do one inspection with the tenant when they uh, first move in. And then we'll do what we call a kind of eight-month checkup. Uh, and that eight-month checkup is really just to give us an idea of what kind of damage the tenant has done to the home at that point and what kind of a turn this might be. And it also gives us a chance to start talking to the tenant about um, their security deposit and any tenant-caused issues. Uh, and so we generally do it at the eight-month eight mark because at the nine-month nine mark, we're generally sending out uh, their renewal offer. At that eight-month mark, we either know whether we want to renew them or not first, if they've been a terrible tenant. Uh, but if they've been a good tenant, we want and we do want to renew them, we know the uh, state of the home so that we know what our alternatives are. So if they've been a great tenant, the home looks beautiful, it would be a potentially easy turn. We know that we have the ability to raise rent there a little bit more. Uh, if they've been a terrible tenant and the home is a complete wreck, we want to get them out before they do more damage. Uh, and then if they, the home just looks okay, we, we kind of know what the, how, how to price that 
uh, into into the renewal. How were releases structured in relation to sales? You guys are holding for a period of time, but you had clarity on the front side that eventually a liquidity event was going to be the goal once the market turned. Were you able to sell at any time or did the lease actually need to run its full full term before you were able to sell a given home? It depends on who you're selling to. Uh, so um, if we're selling other institutions, they're, they're happy to have the lease in place and they have no problem uh, buying it with our tenants. Uh, they know that we've got the same kind of loans they do. And so we're renting uh, under the same tenant guidelines as they are. If we're trying to sell the homes retail, then we generally do have to vacate them. Uh, and so that's going to vary by market. Uh, in Miami, we sold 120 homes retail. So we, as the leases turned, we would do a um, full kind of disposition capex. Uh, we put, you know, uh, $5,000 into the home and then we'd uh, sell it retail. Basically, those homes are like flips almost. Got it. And did you have those sales agents in-house as well? We did not. So uh, we do have brokers on staff, but we we use the third party in that particular instance, uh, just because there's a lot of work that goes into uh, actually selling a home. There's showings, there's a tremendous amount of paperwork. Essentially, that would have been multiple people's full-time job. And we just didn't feel like it was worth it for such a short term. Now, if we had more properties, if we had you know 10,000 properties, then maybe uh, and we had a consistent volume, then, then maybe we would have. Maybe we would have. Got it. So in terms of the the transition, we talked a little bit about this prior to the show, but can you just kind of walk me through some of the circumstances that led up to the sale of the management company to Roofstock? It was really a change in strategy on our part. Uh, ultimately, when we got into this market in 2012, uh, we saw a tremendous dislocation. We saw prices well below peak. I think today prices are at or above peak in in almost all the markets that we are at, that we're in today. It's really trying to figure out how do we better attack this uh, market in a way that is more institutionally sustainable. So we don't want to be overpaying for homes that uh, are not yielding uh, the cash flow that we need. What we've decided is kind of build to rent communities make more sense today for us than one by one buying in disparate areas. And so we're trying to partner with a builder uh, or two and, and build some build to rent communities for us that that could be a real game changer. But that looks a lot more like multifamily when you think about 100 single family homes in one location. And so because that looks more like multifamily, uh, we're going to be looking at multifamily type property managers. So it'll be just a different model. You'll have a leasing agent uh, on the ground in a clubhouse. You'll have a, a repair and maintenance person on site. It'll, it'll look different. Uh, and so because of that, we no longer really had a need for our current property manager um, because ultimately we still have the, the old properties, but uh, we're clearly going in a different direction. So we thought, listen, if somebody else could better use this institutional property manager, uh, let them do that while we uh, kind of move forward. And, you know, Roofstock approached us and it was kind of a perfect, perfect timing. Fascinating. Where do you see Roofstock taking things? Do you see them going full bore into third-party management and becoming the next kind of national play? Like, how much clarity is there on on what the end game looks like for Roofstock coming into this? So, I have no idea. I think if I was to guess, though, I would say uh, there is a huge need for institutional property managers. When I look at our space today. There are a number of folks who are buying uh, institutional portfolios 
that are wanting to get into our space. So you've got a lot of hedge funds and private equity funds that uh, didn't get in initially when the, the when the initial boom started that want to get in now. Uh, and so those folks are buying thousand home portfolios to just get into the market with scale, and they don't have a third party manager and haven't had the time to build their own property manager. And so to me, I feel like Roostack can fill that gap for some of those folks who don't have a, a manager today. I think the other gap they can fill, there are a number of players who are probably a thousand to three thousand homes. And it really is kind of a break-even proposition to start your own property management firm at that level. You're also not necessarily going to get all of the economy to scale. You're not going to uh, be able to spend as much on technology. They can aggregate those guys. I think they can also win uh, because I think that there's a lot of institutional need for that kind of property management. Uh, and so they can aggregate those guys and, and provide them the kind of institutional uh, services that uh, that they need to build the business. I think that, that that would work as well. So I see them expanding into third-party management, but I see them doing it with a focus on large institutions rather than the onesie twosies. Because I think, one, I also think the onesie twosie market, I think that's already covered. I think there's lots of mom and pops out there. And then there's already Renters Warehouse, there's RPM. There's, there, there are big firms out there focused on that. Uh, but there's not really anyone focused on that, I would say, small to mid-sized institutional operator. So as an entrepreneur, what would your advice be to those mom and pops, somebody that's managing somewhere between two and 400, maybe 500 units, what would be your advice to them on how to pivot the conversation with their clients to look more like a financial performance driven conversation, recognizing that obviously there's a massive difference between an institutional fund and somebody who had a relative pass and now just wants to rent out the home. So the needs are different, but I think there is some value and utility in kind of reframing the conversation to be more financial in nature and to talk about big picture financial outcomes. What would you say about that topic? Do you think there's an opportunity as well to kind of push that finance conversation down lower into the client profile? I think there is, but I think that you're going to have to be willing to spend money. And I think that's where the challenge, uh, that's where the challenge always is. Because in order to provide a institutional quality reporting, you're going to need to have a strong accounting department. So you're going to, you can't just hire, you know, your father-in-law and have to make QuickBooks. Like you're going to need somebody that is familiar with Yardi and or who has some, a real accounting background. That person is going to cost money. Now you really only need one of them, but that person is going to cost money. And I think if you're really going to try to go after the institutional business, there is going to be some investment. I think the other thing, though, that you have to be really willing to think about and, and stick to your guns on is if you go after an institutional business, uh, you need to make sure that the investments you're making are not going to be you know, taken from you in a month. So you really need to push for contracts that have a more sticky time frame. So at a minimum, I'd say you would need a six-month cancellation notice if you're going to attempt to take on institutions uh, and say that you're going to invest in your business so that you can be uh, more able to cater to their needs, you should really make sure that you negotiate at least a six to 12 month breakup provision so that you're able to, so that you're able to wind down your business uh, in the appropriate manner or go out and source additional potential clients while they ramp down their business. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Makes, makes sense. So my last question for you is just around financial performance. 
What were your standards and targets in terms of uh, cap rates or the equivalent metrics of what you guys were trying to drive from the portfolio? It really depended on the market. Uh, you know, for the Atlanta market, for example, uh, you're really trying to drive to a 60% gross margin. So if your revenues are $100, you want your expenses to be around 40 so you're getting profit of about 60 That's kind of the way we think about that. In Phoenix, you know, it's probably 70 five or it's probably 70 to 70 to 72 and a half ish so it varies by market but you want to make sure that you're pretty close to uh where the publics are and you want to make sure and really what drives that is the repair and maintenance cost and uh potentially some of your leasing costs but the repair and maintenance cost is the biggest variable and ultimately that really being able to keep that down to a number that is manageable and and that keeps you in that kind of gross margin range uh, is what what we're focused on. If we can get to that sixty gross margin, then we know that will generate a certain uh, cap rate and a cash on cash yield. Hey, really appreciate you coming on the show as you're kind of making this transition out of Street Lane back onto the G- GTS side. You got any other projects going on? Where can folks kind of find out about what you're up to in the future? Yeah, no, I was. I think we mentioned this earlier. So I'm also starting a podcast with an entrepreneur friend of mine uh, that is more real estate investment focused. We'll talk a little bit about SFR called the uh, the Real Haze podcast. We're working on that kind of a podcast blog. That's a personal project that I'm doing uh, that's really dedicated to the first time entrepreneur. Uh, the goal is to try to set out a blueprint so that anybody that wants to get into the business can do so as risk mitigated way as possible. That's what I'm working on. Uh, and then obviously on the, uh, on the business side, uh, we continue to acquire build to rent homes and we continue to uh, build up our SFR profile. Build to rent. That's a whole nother podcast episode. It's a popular theme. Yeah. Look forward to hearing more about that. So again, the podcast was the real haze podcast. Is that right? Yep, that's right. You can find us on iTunes or Spotify, wherever you get your uh, local podcast. <laughs> All right, check it out, guys. Hey, Michael, thanks again for coming on the show. The next time you're in Austin, let's break bread. I didn't know you were in Austin. That uh, that that might actually happen sooner rather than later. All right, sounds good. Let's plan on it. Talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks for tuning in to the Profitable Property Management Podcast. Please subscribe and leave us a review. Your feedback makes this a better show, and the more reviews we get, the better our guests become. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget that you can find us online in the Profitable Property Management Facebook group, where we mastermind with the best in the industry.